0: It was, of course, in God's providence that a little girl who had gone from Israel to Syria was able to witness to the fact that there was a prophet of God in Israel who was able to heal people. It's rather ironic that a man who had been a military captain who had helped gain the victory over Israel is now represented in the Bible as having to go to Israel to gain his salvation. Here's the man, you see, who had oppressed. Here's the man who kept Israel in check. And now he had to go to Israel seeking his aid. Now, the Syrian king was quite ready. He was indeed anxious to have Naaman restored. In fact, the Bible tells us he sent a very valuable gift, ten talents of silver. Anybody want to make a guess how much ten talents of silver is worth today? Try in the range of $95,000. Ten talents of silver, $95,000, 6,000 shekels of gold. That's equivalent of two talents of gold. And he sent ten changes of raiment, which was highly desired, of course, in the Middle East. You may take it for granted that you you can change your clothes every day, but that wasn't a common thing in the Middle East. It was very dusty, and remember, they didn't have showers and all the rest. No inside plumbing. And so to be given ten changes of clothes its quite a wardrobe to be given. And so the Syrian king sends all this wealth and clothing and says, Look, we're going we're gonna to buy Naaman's salvation. Okay? We'll give you this big gift. You take care of his needs. And it sends a royal letter. And of course, the Bible abbreviates what the royal letter says. But the letter introduces Naaman to the uh, king of Israel and asks him to intercede so that he might have his flesh restored. But when the letter came to the king of Israel, the Bible says that he misunderstood it, requiring him to perform the cure himself. And as the Bible says, he saw this as a pretext for a quarrel. He, he cries out, he says, Am I God? What does this man want of me? He sends Naaman to me, and he says, Here's a royal letter. Here's all these gifts. Here's all this money. Cure him. I, um, I can't come real close to understanding that because I've never been put in an identical situation. But from time to time, people who minister and counsel with others get similar kinds of requests, and there are days where you wonder if people aren't asking you because you are, quote-unquote, a holy man, a religious person, to do these sorts of things. The king of Israel thought that the king of Syria was looking for a fight, requiring him to do things that only God can do. He demands something of me which only God can do said the king of Israel. You see, to kill and to make alive is the province of God. The king of Israel understood very well that God is the one who gives life and breath and all things to us, that in him we live and move and have our being. He realized that the fortunes of men, the health of their body, the length of their life, all in the Lord's hands, all in his providential care. And we know in the Old Testament, by the way, that leprosy was regarded as the equivalent of death. Naaman was upset, not simply because he had some minor disease that you see was an irritation to him. He was upset because leprosy was death itself. Socially, it was death. Nobody could come in touch with a leper. And the leper, when he walked down the street, even outside the cities, had to cover his mouth and yell, unclean, unclean, so that when people would come up the road toward him, they could pass to the other side. Nobody came in touch with lepers. And leprosy, a terrible disease in that day, would finally eat away at a person's body until he died. It was the equivalent of death. And here comes this leper into the court of the king, and the leper says, my king says that you can make me whole again. Do it. The king of Israel thought that he was being put upon to perform the very task that God alone can perform. It's interesting to me, we don't have time to dwell on it this morning, that while the king of Israel was so astute when it came to his theology. He was not a man of faith. It's something for you to think about today. The king of Israel knew very well it was in God's hand to make alive and to kill. Only God could heal. I mean, he knew his theology in the abstract. He knew the right answers to certain theological questions. I almost get the impression the king of Israel might have been able to pass a presbytery exam, even in our presbytery. But he was not a man of faith. And being able to answer theological questions doesn't make you a man or a woman of faith. For you see, while he knew all of this, he just despaired and despaired. He tore his clothes. You, you may think it's strange when you read in the Bible here that Elisha heard that the king had torn his clothes. That doesn't mean that his clothes were just so loud as he ripped them and everybody knew. Word got around when the king of Israel walked about in torn clothes. You see, he didn't just tear his clothes and say, wasn't that an interesting ceremony? Now I'm going to go put on another pair of clothes. No, he would go around with these torn clothes to let people know that he was in grief. What would he do? He didn't have any idea what to do. He didn't turn to the man of God. He didn't turn to the Lord in faith. He just grieved. But Elisha heard, and he sent to the king to remind him that there was one in Israel who indeed had the power of God, who was the servant of God, who was a prophet of God, who could heal Naaman. And so, the king sends Naaman to Elisha's house. Naaman's an interesting character. Reminds us of ourselves, I trust. For you see, he had a pretty good idea of how God was going to perform this miracle. He had, if you will, a certain religious sense he had a certain idea of what was a sophisticated way to go about religious exercises. Elisha, though, you see, he wasn't a high church Anglican at all. You know, he didn't have these uh, these highfalutin ideas of worship. In fact, Elisha seems to have lacked even a little bit of social grace. Naaman, one of the greatest men in Syria, comes to his door, and Elisha sends from the back room his servant out to the door and says, here's the message. Uh, you know, in our day and age, if that were to happen, it would be enough. I mean, we would all say, what's wrong with this guy? I mean, what is this guy, John the Baptist, eating locusts and honey and not knowing how to get along with people? He's out here in the back room, tells his servant to go. That'd be bad enough in our day, but in that day, it was a great insult. Oh, no. You see, if Naaman came to your door, even without a request, you know, you would have to really put on just about as big a, a show and ceremony and party as you possibly could for this man, to be polite. I mean, he was one of these uppity-ups in society. Not only that, he was from your opponent's army. You don't dare want to insult somebody like this. But now, what if Elisha had, you see, done what Naaman expected? What if Elisha had gone through the religious motions that Naaman required of him? What would Naaman have been taught by that? He would have been taught salvation and healing and wholeness and the blessing of God was on his own terms. You know, that God would just go through the kinds of ceremonies that the sinful man expected God to go through. You can almost expect that Naaman thought that he was at the, at the, at the bar and that God was in the dock. And that Naaman, the leper, the sinner, the one in need, was saying to the all-sufficient, holy God, this is how you'll have to perform your work as God. I have a better idea of what it means to be God than you do. And I certainly know what it calls for to heal people. And so let's get this straight, God. You operate in this way if you want to be respected as God. Naaman says, I certainly expected him to come to the door and to wave his hand over the place. You know, Naaman had a very exact idea. He had played this thing out all the way from Syria to Israel in his chariot. You know, you can think of Naaman saying, oh, isn't it going to be great? Elisha's going to come out here, you know, and he's going to say, okay, Naaman, you stand right there, and now you wave your hand over the place, and then he's going to say this magnificent prayer, you know, the sort of thing, King James English, beautiful, and then he's going to say, God, heal this wonderful creature of a man. Isn't it wonderful that he's come to us? And Elisha didn't do any of that. The terrible thing is that the story tells us not only did Elisha not conform to the preconceived notions of Naaman when it came to how to heal people, he told him something that was a downright insult. He didn't simply insult him by the way he acted. He told him to do something that nobody in his right mind would listen to. He said, I want you to go down and wash the Jordan River. Wash in the Jordan River. Most people in those days would have thought you'd have to wash because you were in the Jordan River. It was such a dirty river. It was muddy and murky and so forth. And uh, Naaman is reflecting very properly on the, on the uh, geography and the physical circumstances of that day when he says, well, the two greatest rivers back in Syria are beautiful, clear rivers. I could go back to Syria. If it's just a matter of washing up, then I could just go back to Syria and do this. Why do I have to go down to this muddy Jordan River? Well, Naaman had had it at that point. When he thought of the way Elisha had insulted him by not coming to the door, Elisha didn't match up to his preconceived ideas of what a religious man should do to heal people. And then Elisha tells him to go and wash in the muddy Jordan River. He had had it. And so he leaves and the Bible says he left in a rage. He left in a huff. He said, well, I've had it with this. And he took off. how many people today do exactly the same thing when they look at the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ? That's the way God saves people? Well, forget it. We've got a lot better idea of how God could save people. I mean, we know what call. you know, we have a dignified way of being saved. You know, we go to a church and we pay our money. We're good citizens of this country. We have a nice family life. We have a nice home. That's how God saves people. God saves us because we do our good works, right? We go through some magnificent ceremony or we do some mighty work for God, and God saves us. We're pretty decent people, and God's going to save us on that basis. And then when you tell them, no, for all of your preconceived notions, God doesn't save you that way. God doesn't save people because of who you are or what ceremonies you go through or how much money you have or how nice a family you have. God doesn't even look at your good works. He doesn't even balance, you see, the good works against the bad. Because insult though it may be, the fact is if God were to try to do that sort of thing, the balance would be so heavy on the end of your bad works that you wouldn't even bother to put the good ones in the scale. I mean, they'd be dust in the balance over against the lead weight of your wickedness. And people are offended by that. And the Bible says to people that all of your righteousness is as... Filthy rags. And you recall two weeks ago when I preached to you what Isaiah means when he says filthy rags. He means unclean in the foulest way according to the Hebrew menstrual cycle of a woman. Filthy rags. Now this is what we offer to God. This is our, our righteousness. It isn't as though, God, we realize we have these filthy rags in the back closet. Okay? And we know they're there, God, and we're really sorry, but we're going to put on our Sunday best and come before you. God says, no. You see, what you call your best is what I call filthy. Filthy. And people walk away in a rage. Now, I'm going to tell you how to get people saved. I'm going to think this through in a humanistic, worldly way, and I'll explain to you what we could do if we want to really get people saved and interested in going to heaven. If we want to get people saved, we could take out very large ads explaining to them what mighty thing they would do. And believe me, what they would do would be much harder than simply professing faith in Jesus Christ and trying to live a life that's decent before him and worshiping with the church and all the rest, we could say, we'd like you all to go to Riverside, get down on your hands and knees, and go all the way to Disneyland on tax. Now, if you do that, God will save you. And you know that there were people who would flock to Riverside to crawl to Disneyland because they would think, finally... Finally, I'll have God under control. Finally, I'll be able to do something where, I have to, where he'll have to say, well, of course, look what you did. Who could but save such a person who would crawl from Riverside to Disneyland on tax? Or if we put out an ad in the paper saying, we're selling salvation, you know, for a small contribution, $5,000. $5,000. I'm talking about when the nickel drops into the chest, the soul flies free to heaven. I mean, we're talking indulgence. We're talking about God making it easy on you. And people would scrape and save, and they'd work overtime until they got their 5,000, and they'd figure they were in. I'm telling you, there are a lot of ways we could get people interested in the church of Jesus Christ. Naaman went away in a rage, and people will go away in a rage when we tell them what God really requires of them. But then you see a servant came to Naaman. The servant used what we call in philosophy a fortiori reasoning from the lesser to the greater. And the servant says to Naaman, now look, if he had asked you to do some fantastic thing, wouldn't you have done it? Naaman thinks to himself, well, of course. I would have done anything. He says, well, now that he's asked you to do something that's very simple, why shouldn't you do it? You can imagine Naaman. I mean, he's on his way away from the Jordan River. What kind of humility that would have called for, for Naaman to say, well, maybe. Maybe. I was wrong. I'm sure Naaman did not turn on the road and say, I've been wrong all along. My life's been lived according to my own wisdom. The prophets convinced me of my wayward ways. I'm going back to the river. I'll bet you Naaman kept looking back towards Syria as he, as he inched his way toward the Jordan River, thinking, do I really want to do this? Do I really want to show all these servants and all the entourage around me that I'm this kind of man? And then of all things, Elisha had asked him to dip seven times in the river. You know, Naaman probably wanted to go up there and put his foot into the river and pull back and say, clean, right? That's it. (laughs) I came in touch with the holy water and it's all over. No, you go down and you dip yourself all the way into the river, Naaman. And Naaman goes down once and comes back up. And of course, you know, the leprosy is just as bad as it ever was. And now what's he beginning to think? And this man's played me for a fool. And he goes down a second time very hesitatingly and comes back up and he says, isn't there even a beginning of healing? No beginning of healing. And a third time and a fourth. And about the fifth time, probably Naaman was thinking, I've had just about enough of this insult. I better get out of this river and try to regain whatever dignity I have and get out of here. But Naaman, he said seven times. He goes down a sixth time and still not a sign of healing. He would have gotten out of the river, probably, if it had been left up to him. He went down the seventh time, however, by the grace of God. And when he came up, it wasn't as though the leprosy had started to heal. It was gone. And when he came up the seventh time, his skin was like a baby's skin. No sores. No sign of malignancy. Nothing. Absolutely healed. I told you at the beginning of today's message, this is a very important Old Testament lesson about what it takes to be saved. In the New Testament, Jesus refers to this story but once. In Luke, the fourth chapter, verse 27. In Luke four twenty-seven, Jesus says, "...and there were many lepers in Israel in the time of Elisha the prophet." And none of them was cleansed, but only Naaman, the Syrian. Now, why is Jesus reminding them of this story about Naaman? Well, verse 24 preceding has said, And he said, Truly I say to you, no prophet is welcome in his hometown. Verses 28 and 29. And all the sy- in the synagogue were filled with rage as they heard these things. And they rose up and cast him out of the city and led him to the brow of the hill on which their city had been built in order to throw him down the cliff. At Nazareth, Jesus would have been murdered by a wrathful congregation who had heard his sermon. What had he said in his sermon? What did Jesus say to offend these nice townspeople? Jesus had told them that he was the prophesied Savior of the Old Testament that the promise of the gospel being proclaimed and men being healed and captives set free had come true in him. And they are very angry with Jesus. And it's at that point that Jesus says, I remind you, there were plenty of lepers in Israel. Plenty of lepers in Israel, but God healed only one, a Syrian, a man from outside of Israel. Jesus knew very well the day would come when because of his preaching and because of his claims, men would kill him. And then after that, after his resurrection, as the apostles proclaimed the good news, that by that death, God had conquered death, and by that death, he had forgiven sins, that the Jews would scoff and say, A criminal? God saves us by means of a criminal? He saves us by means of a man who went to a dirty, ugly cross and bled to death? Forget it. Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians chapter 1 that the cross offends human wisdom. God, we know how you should save people. You could do it in a dignified way. Look, just ask for a contribution. Ask for a great work. Don't tell us we have to believe in this man, this man who made such great claims for himself, who died such an ugly death. God, we'd much rather that we could only do penance the rest of our life. We'd much rather if we could just go to a priest and talk about it and get it right. But God says talking to a priest will do you no good and your contributions will do you no good and your penance will do you no good and all of your great works will do you no good because when you want to get clean, you're going to have to get clean God's way. And God tells us in the book of Revelation chapter 7 that those who have been made right with the Lord have been made right because their robes are washed in the blood of the Lamb. It's a strange way of washing robes. Most people would think of that as rather hideous, dipping robes in blood and making them white. But God does that because, you see, he doesn't call the righteous to himself, and he doesn't call those who think they are healed and in no need of a physician. God calls those who reason very accurately that I am in such a bad shape, I have no reason to complain whatever he asks me to do. And if God wishes to save in this way, then it's in this way that I'll be saved. In Luke 10, we read, Thou hast hid these things from the wise and the prudent and hast revealed them unto babes. Even little children understand that if they're going to be saved, they have to do it God's way. That if they're going to be cleansed, they have to be cleansed according to the word of God. Luke 9, Verily I say unto you, except ye are converted and become as little children, ye shall not enter the kingdom of heaven... Whosoever therefore shall humble himself as a little child, the same is greatest in the kingdom of heaven. And if any man among you seemeth to be wise in this world, let him become a fool that he might be wise. Are you ready to cleanse yourself in a very foolish way today? Are you ready to let the world mock? Are you ready to tell people that you really... Are going to have the blood of the Savior cleanse you Naaman came very close to walking away from it in his pride because he had preconceived ideas of what salvation called for my guess is that for whatever training you have today all of you have preconceived ideas of what to expect of God today God calls upon you to put them all aside and to listen simply to the Word of God God forbid that I should glory saving the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ. For God resists the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. Can you be humble enough to let Jesus and Jesus alone be your Savior this morning? Can you be humble enough to say that his blood is all-sufficient, Lord, we come to you not with any despair, not with any doubt, not with any pride. We come to you as poor, miserable sinners, recognizing and confessing that if we should be saved, it will be in your way. Then if we are going to be clean in your sight, it will be according to your instructions. Lord, please take away from us everything that detracts from the gospel of Jesus Christ. Lord, help us to see what good news it is that you saved men according to your wise plan. Lord, enable us to endure the ridicule of the world, the taunts of foolishness, that we, even as Naaman of old, might be restored, that we might indeed be healed, healed spiritually and restored to our Savior. We ask, Father, that you would do this, that you'd work this work of grace so that we might learn our utter dependence upon you, not simply in, in all matters for life, not simply depending upon you that we might eat and drink day by day, but depending upon you for our eternal salvation, recognizing that whatever we receive comes by your wisdom and not by our preconceptions. For it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.